Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Why are you following me? The stuff you wear isn't appropriate for what you're planning on doing. You don't know anything about me. I'm ready. You're not. And none of the stuff that you're thinking means anything anyway. Never kissed anyone before. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching. We are who we are. Uh, I am Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you were just joining us, us here for the first time. What we do on this podcast is Richard and I pick a show that is currently airing and we watch it one episode at a time and we talk about it. Um, and as I just mentioned, we are currently covering HBO's uh, We Are Who We Are from Luca Guadagnino. We are on episode three, so we will be discussing everything up through episode three. We will not be proceeding past that because I believe Richard and I still have not watched past the current episode so we are we are fresh eyes on on all of this um you can always email us still watching pod at gmail.com we actually got a couple emails this week which is fun because richard and i like both were sort of like is anyone gonna want to like <laughs> talk to us about the show is anyone gonna, like you know we were used to people writing in like theories and stuff like that but we got some great great emails this week so thank you guys so much um, so yeah, before we get into the discussion of the episode, let's just hit these emails really quickly. This first one comes from Ian, uh, and we had talked last week about, um, well, I'll just read Ian's email. He says, I was interested by Joanna's reflection on how she tended to romanticize Italy because of British authors who had done the same. It reminded me of a title on the subject I came across when I worked on the book review section of an academic journal, The Warm South, colon, How the Mediterranean Shaped the British Imagination, um, which is a book that is readily available um to you know if you want to where you buy your books you can go buy this book it is uh it is written by uh robert holland and um you know, and so it's just, um, I'll, I'll just like read a little bit of a description about it. Ever since the age of the Grand Tour in the 18th century, the Mediterranean has had a significant pull for Britons, including many painters and poets who fought, who sought from it the inspiration, beauty, and fulfillment that evaded them at home, referred to as magic land by one traveler. Dreams about the Mediterranean and responses to it went on to shape the culture of a nation. Uh, written by the, one of the world's leading historians of the Mediterranean, this book charts how a new sensibility arose from British engagement with the Mediterranean, ancient and modern, ranging from Byron's poetry to Damien Hirst's installations. Robert Holland shows that while idealized visions and aspirations often met with disillusionment and frustration, the Mediterranean also offered a notably insular society the chance to enrich itself through an imagined world of color, carnival and sensual self-discovery. So I'm um, like, I think that, um, you know, uh, that, that theme really comes to bear uh, in this episode because we get like a literal street party, a carnival sort of thing um, where, you know, you kind of get the sense that people are, 
as almost like, you know, in a shakes, you know, like I'm thinking of like Midsummer Night's Dream or something like that, where people like their their baser instincts or emotions sort of come burbling out in a setting like this one in this episode. Richard, is that connection seem far-fetched? What do you, what do you think about that? No, no, I, I think that makes sense. I think there are a couple um, certainly interludes in this episode that that do have that kind of you know, night of magic kind of midsummer night dream kind of thing to the, the sense that, um, that everything is closer to the surface of, of, you know, feeling. And, um, uh, we see that in ways both, uh, I guess somewhat joyful and, but a lot of anger in this episode, a lot of rage, yeah, which a lot I of think rage. has something to do with where, when the show is set, which we can get into, but, but yeah, that book sounds fascinating. Um, and I think would be something, to an interesting line to trace from you know the grand tour era to uh things as recent as under the tuscan sun and mamma mia and you know things that <laughs> romanticize right. the mediterranean in uh or i mean Tus- tuscany isn't exactly i mean it's close um you know in ways that uh feel maybe a little fresher but also kind of are still doing the same thing um, yeah, and also that sort of like white tourism of like eat, pray, love or whatever under the Tuscan sun is similar sort of like, you know, white lady finds herself um, sort of thing, which I, you know, listen, white ladies deserve uh, emotional awakenings, too. It's just like, yeah, they always it seems like they're always going to a piazza to do so. So um, and, and, and these stories never seem to bring any of that feeling back to America. You know, it's right. never like, hey, yeah. look, these people have like, I mean, obviously, Italy is mired in economic problems. So is Greece. But like, um you know, the sense of like, well, maybe there's more to life than like working and, you know, right. things that I feel like um, Europeans in general with better vacation time and better maternity leaves and things like that are just, uh, you know, we, people enjoy them to go visit them or, or have one person go live off the fantasy life there. But we don't tend to bring the ethos uh, back home. I think, yeah, it's, that's a really good point. And, and like to to your point that you made last week sort of about these army kids um, and the the life that they're experiencing. I mean, this episode starts with sort of um, Harper talking about sort of almost object impermanence. The idea of like, why would you care for a thing if as an army kid, you're just going to pull up, you know, stakes and, mm. and move at any given time. So why would, why would you, why would things be something you invest in, you know? Right. Um, all right. So um, we also got this email from Chris about uh, the music, uh, which we mentioned a bit last week. So uh, thanks for speaking about the music featured in the show. I have absolutely nothing to do with it, but I've been a huge fan of Luca's use of music since Call Me By Your Name. Unsurprisingly, Luca works with Robin Erdang quite often, and there is a bit of a musical overlap between Call Me By Your Name and We Are who we are. The first being 80s Euro music. The first piece used at the beginning of episode two is by Klaus Nomi, an experimental German artist from the 80s. They both also feature pieces by feature, <laughs> pieces by John Adams. So does I Am Love. Uh, he made Hallelujah Junction, which stars Call Me By Your Name, which starts Call Me By Your Name. I was looking at the ceiling and then I saw the sky, which starts episode one of We Are Who We Are, and the piano song we hear while Harper's on the bus. Also interesting to know that the song Harper is listening to while in bed is by a young M.A., who is one of the very few well-known queer rappers, a very masculine lesbian. I found most of the songs used on the show via a, men health, a men's health article uh, that's being updated le- weekly. So if you go to menshealth.com, they have like a, li- a soundtrack, ongoing updated soundtrack list. And then uh, Chris compiled what um, he could find into a Spotify playlist. So if you go to Spotify uh, and look for We Are Who We Are playlist by Chris Molina, M-O-L-I-N-A, you will find um, an updating list of the, of the soundtrack. If you want to like bring that... Um, the sun is way too hot. I have a headache feeling, uh, into your, into your offices or, or your homes. Uh, there's a playlist for you. So. Yeah. You know, paint your, paint your, uh, bedroom wall, a sort of earthy stucco-y orange and <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, open the windows while you can, still can, uh, and put on that soundtrack and, you know, it's almost like actually traveling. Yeah, it's it's just the same. It'll be fine. Uh, so yeah, so those are emails. Thank you, thank you both so much. And, and you you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. Love your feedback. Love your insight. Um, I want to start off this episode by talking about. We talked about how the first two episodes are two very two 
uh, two episodes rooted very much in, in point of view, right? We start with Fraser's point of view. We get Harper's point of view on almost similar events. Uh, this episode, I would not say has a singular point of view, but what comes to the fore, um, I think, is a compelling portrait of Sarah, which is Chloe Sevigny's character. So I kind of wanted to start with Sarah, um, mm. uh, who is a really interesting, <laughs> um, scary a compelling figure and like uh i i i guess um you don't get to be commander of a base if you're not someone who uh enjoys power uh and enjoys like some manner of manipulation um but the way we see sarah traverse um this dinner after dinner sex with her partner um, and then how she treats her assistant, who she may or may not know is an object of interest for her son um, at, you know, at this festival um, is interesting to me. What like, you know, what stood out for you, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that this episode um the way that it focuses, I mean, it focuses on a lot of characters, which I, I like that the show is kind of broadening its purview a little bit um, past the first two, which were, you know, in, in certain POVs. Um, but the way that it, it, it kind of juxtaposes uh, Richard. So the other army parent yeah, right. um, and Sarah is, you know, uh, that, that, that all of the order of the military, of course affects everything about career service people's lives, but that there is, as there is with anyone really, um, uh, a vast interiority to their life beyond that ordered world. And, uh, and even uh, something as seemingly cloistered and rigid as living on base, there's obviously this, you know, deep well of, individuality and difference and um and i think it's interesting to get these two glimpses of how these parents use their free time mm. um when they're not um you know in service of this greater ideal so to speak um and neither are good in this episode in some ways no. yeah um i would say that sarah but sarah you know she's dealing with we see further complications with fraser's emotional stability let's say um and and how she reacts to that and you wonder if some of the rest of the way that she conducts you know conducts herself has to do with it sort of needing a release from that stress which is totally understandable um you know whereas i think that um the richard's character is we we see i mean we see like a really angry side of him in this that um you know, I, I don't think that Guadagnino or anyone involved in the show is arguing that these are two sides of the same coin or whatever, like that they are, that these are uh, related necessarily. But uh, I, I think in this episode that is all about, you know, blowing off steam and, and what comes out when you do that. Um, it's interesting to look at these two people who are so um, dedicated to, uh, so, you know, something larger than themselves as they right. see it, struggling with their own interior um, lives and, you know, realities. Well, it's interesting to me that, like, Sarah, um, there's this line in the episode where um, probably Sam, who's the one who broke up with Harper in this episode, says something like, um, she, you know, she always needs to have, be the center of the tension or something like that, when Harper's just walking down the street minding their own business, right? Um, and uh, but I think that that applies to Sarah. I mean, like, obviously, like, Frazier seems like a very challenging kid to raise. But, like, Sarah is doing something that I've seen from narcissistic parents in the past, which is, like, competing with her son. When she says, um, don't be jealous just because she likes me about mm. uh, Harper. Um, and then... Uh, later in dancing with her sister. I mean, we don't know that she knows that Fraser has any sort of connection with her assistant, but it still just feels like I need 
to be desired or be the most the shiniest thing in the room for everyone. You know what I mean? Does that seem fair? Uh, I'm gonna say yeah, that. I mean, not to sound creepy or whatever, but like <laughs> that character who's what's his name? The the major um, Jonathan, Jonathan, Tom Mercier. Yeah. Um, you know, he's this seemingly sweet hunk, you know, he's like hot and maybe a little dopey in a cute way, interested in literature. You know, he's not like dumb, but he just has this kind of guileless quality about him. Yeah. Yeah. And in a world that is, you know, I was thinking about this when Sam breaks up with uh, Harper and it's like, okay, what, what does he do now? Like, who else does he date? I guess he could go meet an Italian girl who doesn't live on the base. But, like, you know, options are somewhat limited for not just, like, actual romantic entanglements, but, like, that kind of energy. Yeah. And Jonathan is clearly in the show's uh, aesthetic and language is putting out that kind of available, uh, intriguing sexual energy, whether or not uh sarah is aware of how that's affecting her son or not but it clearly was sort of a moth to a flame sort of thing um while also having the complicated dynamic of that he's you know he's her assistant essentially and and so there's that in play but i think also just the way that the the show has positioned jonathan on the base and in the kind of flow of these people's you know their traffic through the through the base and and outside the base like He's clearly looming large for people in some way, um, and uh, she had to seemingly tap into that, you know? Um, yeah, it, that that moment, you know, when we watch, we see Fraser see her before we see what he's looking at, though we can, like, pretty quickly figure it out. Um, and, and you have to think about the, like, the triple layer of transgression that's happening here, right? Because it's, like, his crush, number one, even if he's not quite prepared to admit that right his crush number one uh her employee her subordinate number two and uh it you know this the dance is the kind of dance that if i were maggie i would not be stoked to see sarah you know doing that you know especially in public so you know maybe like a trans um, a marital transgression i don't know their arrangement but like maybe and so um i just think it's so interesting to have have a character like this. Chloe Sevigny is perfect person to play a character like this, but I have a character like this. And I just don't think we usually see women play a character like this. So powerful and so in need of um, power, powerful in a different way than we often see women be powerful power in a, in a more, you know, militaristic, aggressive. I want to have sex after a terrible argument with my son in the kitchen kind of thing. And not just a terrible argument with her son in the kitchen, but also uh, the follow up conversation she has with Maggie, where she maybe accidentally at first, but then let's kind of sit there and sink in in a mean way, this whole thing about Fraser not being Maggie's biological child, you know, and, and so there's this kind of nastiness that passes between them, or it's really one, it's in one direction. Yeah. And yet then there's still the, the sort of sex afterward, you know? Um, but I think, and I think as much as that's a really interesting characterization of Sarah and, and Sevigny is so good at those subtle modulations, you know, um, is also that like, there is a bit of empathy at work there too, in that like, it's showing us some similarities between, Sarah and Fraser in that like they're both in their own ways impulsive and mm-hmm. seemingly driven by um sort of emotional whims that maybe they don't feel they have control over or that they don't realize um have these sort of destructive ripples you know affecting those around them um and so as much as they're two very difficult characters increasingly difficult I think in Fraser's case like um there's an understanding, I guess, that's being extended. And right. um, I'm curious to see how that develops because this episode was difficult in a lot of ways. I, I, I sort of, you know, I was watching it with my boyfriend and I, and we were both just sort of like, everyone's horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> like everyone, like so many people are so mean in this episode. Like, um, and I think sometimes that can be a disconnect with, with how certain filmmakers in Europe in particular, like, um, 
their, their, their sensibilities about like tact and kindness are, 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 are sometimes re- represented differently on film than they are when, than people, you know, mm-hmm. f- from Americans and the way that we think of, of, you know, character interaction. So I have to get over that sort of alienation, but I think there's a, also a deeper thing more specific to the show, which is about, um, people who are not only chafing against their circumstances, but like in that chafing are sort of irritating each other and everyone around them, you know? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up Maggie because um, I want to talk about that. I mean, like, I feel like to your point, I feel like every time we cut in the back half of the episode, every time we cut to like Maggie and Jenny, you're like, Oh, two nice people talking to each other. What a relief. Um, But um, when we, when we first um, started podcasting about this, uh, this show a couple weeks ago and you were like, yeah, I'm not sure of that dynamic. Like Frazier seems like he's Sarah's kid. I'm not sure. Like, you know, where exactly Maggie fits in. And we find it in this episode that like Maggie met Sarah when she was like, so newly pregnant she wasn't even showing yet so like maggie has been there from the start and so there's no reason other than this mean possessiveness as i diagnose it on sarah's part for maggie to not be entirely also fraser's mother you know what i mean yeah and so that just seems like a power dynamic that's been held in the household of like you're not the real mom and it's not something that like Frazier seems to hold her to, but something that Sarah, I I would imagine this is not the first time that Sarah, this seems like something Sarah would say all the time. Like my right. son, my son, right. my son, not our son, right? Well, and, and I think we see also that Sarah has some resentment toward the fact that Frazier does go to Maggie for certain things, you right. know, and for, for like more like, um, more sort of like everyday easier counsel on things like pick me up from this thing i'm i'm you know i'm stranded or whatever and and i think that it's not an accident that when we see this dynamic when this family um you know sort of more deeply illustrated in this episode than we have before we also have that brief scene uh between uh jenny and richard where he's like i wonder who's like the man in that relationship like usually you know and 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 while we're i think we are to understand that as like an example of richard's sort of bigotry that is more being teased out um there also is a reality not on gender lines certainly but a reality that like in any parenting uh you know twosome um there are going to be different dynamics, but you know, uh, like certain people are going to fulfill different roles and, and, uh, clearly, uh, Sarah looms large, um, in, in the sort of more dramatic emotional capacity of, uh, Fraser's life. Um, but Maggie, maybe it's less appreciated, uh, clearly offers a really necessary ballast to that. And I mean, yeah, go ahead. And I think that, like, the frustration that both she and Jenny very gently kind of were circling in their scenes in this episode speaks to that. It's like we are like the rocks of these households, and yet um, we are not the ones that anyone turns to uh, when they're having, you know, the big feels, (laughs) really, you know. Right. And and I think it – I think it's really clever then that there's a scene in this episode where – you know, Fraser is teaching Harper to shave, which is something that we saw Maggie like repeating this lesson that Maggie uh, taught him in episode one. And, um, you know, just like the way in which Maggie models good, caring behavior for him um, that, you know, doesn't necessarily like, I th- I think when we see him do something good and kind and caring, it feels like it's, you know, this is behavior learned from Maggie and the out of control rage and stuff like that, you know, it might be behavioral, but, but it also, that comes from, you know, Sarah. And, and once again, not to be too Richard about it and by Richard, I mean the fictional kid Cuddy Richard, like though, those are, you know, traits we would associate with like usually with like a father figure and a mother figure you know what i mean and so like um i just i really like and i and i like you know like sarah's got the big important job like if they move they're moving for sarah's job and not that being a nurse isn't a big important job but like you know that that's the truth like no matter Mm. you know this whole family revolves around 
moving for Sarah's career. And once again, that's just not something I'm even used to seeing modeled in like lesbian relationships on in film and television where it's like they're so clearly an alpha. Um, I'm sure it has, you know, I haven't watched the L word, so I'm not going to like speak to, there's plenty of, of like gay, uh, you know, film television that I haven't watched. So I can't like speak to it broadly, but it, it just feels like an interesting dynamic to explore here. You know, it is interesting di- dynamic. And I think also narratively speaking, um, I really appreciated the Jenny and Maggie scenes because I think a lot of times when you have stories about, you know, the domineering partner, the one that who, around whom the rest of the family orbits and follows right. into wherever. You see characters, oftentimes it's a wife, um, have this sudden realization of like how much of themselves they've seeded away to this kind of family project. Yeah. Um, and yet in this, it's clear that this has been on Maggie and in, in a different in a different way, Jenny's mind for a long time. And so they're meeting each other sort of in medias race and just saying like, yeah, these are, these are things that we think about and that concern us. I, I don't think that we're meant to read any of that conversation as epiphany or an indication that they're either are about to lo- leave their partners. It's just like, yeah, this is like one of the realities. Obviously there are other reasons why we stick around, but like, um, I just appreciated the way that it, it kind of, it peeks in on this and, and, and this, this complicated dynamic, this complicated relationship um, and doesn't try to, um, I guess, like turn anyone's head in like a new direction. It's it's not it's not saying, well, if only they realized how cloister how like stifled <laughs> their life has been. It's like no, like they they already know that, you know. Um, but it's it's part of this kind of bigger compromise of like um, coupling. I mean, they are who they are, you know. And and I think that right. they are, um, right. if not a hundred percent content in that, at least. Um, assured of it, I guess. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, and one of the ways that that comes through in Jenny's case um, is this cultural erasure when she talks about like, you Mm -hmm. know, they only want me to make American food. She's carrying around uh, an apple pie, even though she calls it a cake. It's very confusing for like part of the episode. Um, You know, as American as apple pie, you know what I mean? And the fact that Maggie is there to be like, um, Hey, I see you. You're Nigerian. Like, oh, do you make this dish? Oh, I've had it. I liked it. You know, sort of thing. Like, uh, yeah, it's not epiphany, but it's a, it's an I see you in a way uh, for each other yeah. that they don't get in their own houses often, which I really, uh, I want for them and I like for them. So, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And I think that that I think brings us to another major facet of this episode as I see it, which is um, it's in its kind of slightly opaque, maybe... Uh, a allegorical way it's really digging into the americanness of the story and and when this is taking place like in in the lead up to trump's first uh, election yeah. um is we see in different facets like in these conversations with brazilian maggie and nigerian jenny uh in the fight with the italian people after they lose a tug of war or, you know whatever <laughs> right. like right. like the totalizing of like american aggression and identity and how it just seeks to subsume everything else around it um will not brook any difference that's obviously not true of all of america nor is it true of all americans or whatever but like i think in 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 the way that this show is positioning itself uh in relation to american politics of 2016 and now um it's saying something pretty i think potent and 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 sharp about um the way that americans seem to just bulldoze through the world 
and assume that everyone's going to kind of fall in lockstep behind them or, 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 you know, face worse, you know, consequences. Um, And then you see just a generation removed from that, these kids who have kind of, at least is particularly in Harper's case, grown up floating all around the world. And so don't have that particular national allegiance. I mean, you were talking about the object permanence thing um, and, and how they're really caught between these identities, which, you know, then so interestingly, uh, is in conversation with their sexual and gender identities. And, and I think that, you know, and then the title of the show, it's like, you know, the only constant is there is them and their bodies and their minds. Um, but even those aren't necessarily constant. And, um, I, I think it, I think it's a really interesting way for, uh, you know, a European writer director, his European co-writers, his, cast of you know there an african woman and a brazilian woman and you know to to look at american identity yeah. um through their their perspective yeah no i think that's really smart and something that i that i really love in this episode is this like you could easily have um this thing where richard has this like game he participates in every year and it's important for him that he wins and it's important for him that his daughter be uh there to see him and it's important for him you know even though he rejected in the end it's important that you know jenny be there with the with the the pie cake or whatever you know and that could have easily been like a base thing but the fact that it was um a piogia thing and that the fact that it was like a, a, an ancient seeming traditional thing like to see richard in this like in a hose and a tunic um and and participating in in you know is like a local traditional game it added this uh element of con- of needing to conquer like i don't need to just win the games i need to win your game this is your tradition but i'm here and i'm going to i'm going to participate in it and i'm going to beat you at it uh is is sort of richard's attitude at least that was my read um on it you know? yeah totally and and then when they lost on someone else's turf yeah and we're sulking over their pizza and beer it took what uh, one italian to to make fun of a of a really noxious sentiment which is america first right for for a brawl to break out it's like it's like it's this it's the fragility and the sensitivity mm-hmm. of this supposed america i mean not supposed i mean america is mighty and then it can do great harm to many people around the world and in its own country um but uh, you know, the, this kind of almost pathetic, like, oh, really, man? Like, really? This, like, like, just let it be, you know? Um, but they can't. And it's partly because they are being inculcated uh, by the culture of the military and uh, of of a certain kind of occupation. I mean, you know, there is an American base in a foreign country. And um, I think that thinking of it through that lens and about what you know and what's about to happen in america and and the world um yeah it it frames what harper and uh fraser are sort of grasping at or or starting to grasp at or starting to realize they want to grasp at something um it, it frames it a little in a little sadly i think because in some ways while their lives are going to continue on and in whatever permutations they take um they are going to get swallowed up in this bigger thing. Like everyone is, you know, and um, I find something a little sort of forlorn about that idea. I want to talk about that. Uh, Okay. I'll I'll really quickly mention uh, just to agree with you that like when, when Jenny is like, Oh my gosh, I have to show up with this pie. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, Richard's so fragile. Like, Richard's so fragile if his wife doesn't show up with a pie. And then also, Richard's so fragile that his daughter didn't show up. And it's like, I have empathy for parents who, like, have a close relationship with a child and that child shows up and they need them less. But, like, are you really going to sulk over your pizza about this? Like, she, you know, your your child is a teen. They are doing their own thing now. Like, I don't know. It's, um, I don't mean to not have empathy for that experience. It just, like, it, it was interesting to see because the rage that I suspect is there in within Richard, which we saw, you know, when, when, when he got upset about the boat and stuff like that, like, the rage that's there... Um, it was so interesting to see his stillness compare, like, in contrast to that rage that was breaking out in the brawl behind him. So that that was like, cause, there, cause there's a different, 
approach where you could have him get involved in that brawl and you could see that brawl as a way for him to work through his anger and and hurt that he's feeling around uh Harper not being there but like instead he's just sitting still against it which i thought was interesting yeah and then to contrast that with Danny his son who yes. like attacks both his sister and verbally and and then uh Fraser physically right um because he's upset that his dad quit the ba- basketball game to discipline his sister you know and like he's upset that seemingly this new kid has come maybe usurping his father's desired position in the base but also just like disrupting this like little social group um you know it's that that anger is uh is inherited certainly (laughs) um all right so let us talk about um the hillary clinton cameo uh in this episode um this you know as we mentioned the like the the trump clinton election is the backdrop uh, the political backdrop, at least, of this episode or or the series, uh, we see. I believe it's the DNC, like Clinton's speech of the DNC, um, and um, and Bernie Sanders sort of like <laughs> tepidly clapping for her. And then Sarah says this thing where she says, um, "My type, but not my kind." Which I thought was really fascinating because I tried to parse it like nine different ways. Um, what was your read on that uh, reaction? I don't really know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think a lot of this show is is challenging my like character in analysis. I think because <laughs> they're behaving in ways that don't really follow trusted patterns of like characterization mm. from like American writers. What yeah. did you make of it? I think my parsing of it is. Um, my type being like, I mean, if we want to describe Hillary Clinton this way and I don't see it as an insult, like a ball busting lady, um, but not my kind, meaning I suspect Sarah is a registered Republican voter. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like so so many in the military, you know? Yeah. So my, you know, um, my type in that, like, I'd like to root for this woman who has, um, had to be tough in many different ways, you know, however you want to define tough, um, in order to get where she is, but I'm, you know, I don't agree with the liberal agenda here. I think, I think that's what it is, unless it's the opposite. And it's like, I'm a Democrat, but not like that. I don't know. But I, I suspect, I would really suspect Sarah's a Republican. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. And did you, did you have any larger, like, Clinton Trump thoughts beyond what you already expressed in this episode? Uh, just a minor feeling of how, I mean, granted, how almost pathetic the, the, the little Clinton snippet plays. I mean, knowing what was about to happen and just knowing how her brand of things and, 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 and sort of mainstream democratic politics, like just seems so ineffectual in this world. You know, on this base, like, what the fuck did that mean? You know, whereas Trump, like him or hate him, was saying something loud enough for uh, these people to pay attention. You know, Um, I'm not I'm not in any way praising Trump, but but, um, you know, it's just this Hillary thing. And it's just, you know, cute little Jonathan alone in the office. Oh, I know. (laughs) You know, and it's like, oh, so sweet. But then you kind of think then you kind of turn toward the TV and you're like, oh, so sweet. You know, it's yeah. like it just feels so diminutive in a way. And and, and I, I have no doubt that part of that is gender. Um, but uh, yeah, the juxtaposition between that moment and the Trump election stuff looming so much bigger in an earlier episode, uh, I think, is not uh, an accident. Mm, yeah, like the tiny screen versus the huge outdoor like movie screen. That's good. Can I just say, by the way, speaking of Jonathan, yeah. uh, I'm just taking a gander at Tom Mercier's Instagram. It's a delight. Oh, great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. good to know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I I would listen to him talk about Ocean Wong like any day of the week. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, that, really thrilled. Yeah. That moment when... You know, there's that sweet thing where he's like, he has a novel coming out. It's you know, and 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 yeah. that was a big, that was a big book. That was on the, the that was on the oh, yeah. the, the towel of many like Fire Island selfies. You know, like it was on the <laughs> even, beach towel. Even behind. I read it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, uh, that moment was really cute. But then when Jonathan leaves and Fraser has this like like reaction where yeah. he's just like, wait, does that mean he might be? You know, like it's just it's very sweet and I think um, was a really great bit of acting uh, from young Mister Grazer. 
Yeah. Also, I knew it was you. I knew it was you who had the book. Like, that's just like a, right. it's another like Maggie Jenny, I see you sort of moment, which just uh-huh. sounds nice. Um, but I, yeah, I, so, so with the Clinton thing, I want to talk about the treatment of Harper in this episode, uh, which just gives me like, uh, you know, Clinton-esque acid flashbacks in terms of like how much Harper is being blamed for things that Harper has nothing to do with in this episode by her friend group. Like um, being blamed for breaking up the friend group, being blamed, you know, how could you break up with him when Sam broke up with Harper? Um, And then at one point, like at the parade, when Brittany calls Harper across the like path of the parade and Harper comes over and then like Brittany's like, oh, I'm sorry. She's being a bitch. I was like, what do you mean? She's being, uh, you know, they're being a bitch. Like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, and, and it's, and it's not, um, it's not uncommon for this to happen uh, to, you know, however, however, uh, Harper is is considering their gender right now to young women, to young presenting as women, people um, being blamed for nothing, <laughs> doing nothing, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think I think that's an interesting thing about this show, which is, you know, you and I and other audience members might come in with our preconceived ideas of like oh it's italy it's going to be so progressive and i mean i know that italy has you know i i we know that intellectually but like it's it's a sort of it's a dreamy show set in europe like oh that'll that'll be so like everyone's gonna be so freewheeling and you know amorous and whatever and then partly because of the american presence but also just partly because this is the story they're telling uh all of these like really hardwired bad things start clanging against all of what we, what we we wish would just be you know this free expression um which i would have to imagine uh was the intention um was you know i gave you some version melancholy as it might have been of the you know falling in love as a queer teen uh thing in combo your name and now here is a more modern uh perhaps more realistic look at what that kind of exploration actually uh mm. feels like and 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 functions as yeah uh you know and i i, I want to talk about that you know so so if, if call me by your name is considered like a, an awakening <clears throat> for elio um like you know we're, we're witnessing a similar thing here with harper in terms of a, and like an awakening of the possibility of gender expression and you know for all that fraser is um, an out of control, uh, you know, force uh, around Sarah. Uh, he's so tender with Harper, and um, the things you know, like sh- showing Harper photos of trans um folks and talking about the possibilities there, and watching Harper, you know, like experiment with shaving cream on their lip or or like feeling their like you know, their breasts and being like, do I want this? What do I want? I, I could be wrong, but I, I haven't seen a lot of slow, uh, storytelling around someone, you know, awakening to the idea of being trans. I've seen cinema and television about already trans people, trans teens, but um, I don't know about awakening. Am I missing something big? Is does this feel like a little different? What do you think, Richard? Well, I, I haven't I haven't seen the uh, everything about this topic, you know. Um, right. But uh, yeah, from what I've seen, I think that for me the big difference is compared to a film like Girl, the Belgian film that was won a bunch of awards at Cannes and then Netflix bought it and then it premiered in the U.S. and everyone was like, "What the fuck is this movie?" Um, because I think in some cases. Um, which is weird to say about America, American discourse about trans issues actually does feel a little bit more advanced than that of like Western Europe's. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't speak to the rest of the world. Obviously there are many different, uh, you know, philosophies and whatever about all this and, and that, that, that go back into history and, you know, um, but, uh, but, you know, I think about what's happening with, um, a certain strain of British feminism right now, uh, which has really been bad. And, um, you know, but anyway, that movie girl, like uh, it, it focused so intently on 
the body stuff and particularly genitalia um, in a way that um, to hear a lot of trans writers and uh, activists who spoke out against the film really was not only unfair and kind of prurient in its gaze, it wasn't made by a trans person. Um, It also was really reductive about what that experience can be, you know, in, in terms of, yes, obviously body stuff is involved, but it's, it's something more holistic, more complicated. And I really like the way that this show, and, and maybe if we have, you know, people uh, who, who know better than I, you know, who disagree, please let us know. But like, to me, it seems it's done, it's been, been, it's being done a bit more uh, slowly and kind of, you know, more empathetically and, and just sort of feels more organic, I guess. Um, I mean, we'll see what's yet to come, but uh, it, I, I like the way that it's being meted out both carefully and casually, I guess, which is a really hard thing to do. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. It reminded me of something that you said to me like years and years and years ago, and I forget which podcast, where you were talking about, um, you know, I want to see more gay narratives that aren't like, oh my gosh, I'm coming. It's my coming out narrative. I want to see more like about about young kids, uh, teens or whatever. Like, I want to see more like I'm already out now. What sort of thing? Which I think we're getting more of. This was as I said several years ago, and you were like, I've seen the love Simon or the whatever, you know, like I want something a little different. And, um, and so then I, I was thinking of like, maybe the opposite is kind of true of, of the trans narrative where we've seen a lot of like, you know, like euphoria or other things where like, not a lot, but we've seen some things where like the decision is already made. Um, or I don't know if that's an inaccurate terminology, but like, uh, the process has already begun or something like that. You know what I mean? And, and, and Harper is, is right, right at the beginning of something. And that is a really compelling to watch. Um, and- yeah. Yeah. I think it's compelling to watch. And it's, it, it, it's also as much as I think there is a sense of political doom looming around this show, like kind of stalking yeah. the edges of the show. I think also um, in that sweet scene in, in, in Fraser's bedroom, which, by the way, you know, has a Klaus Nomi poster on it. And uh, I think it's right. an Italian poster for uh, uh, Blue Velvet. Like, like, yes. yeah. So, I mean, that's Luca being like, eh, I like those things. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> you know, like, here is the, the 1% that's good about the Internet. You know, like, oh, they can look up this stuff and feel yeah. that they are part of, uh, you know, not, 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 I'm not saying that Harper identifies as part of any community, but like, see that that's out, that, that that is out there. And in this weird island, essentially, that they live in or on, uh, that that the the bigger world um, is waiting for both of them in whatever form that they want to be, you know. And um, again, I think there you have the title of the show coming to bear on things where it's like, you know, R is present tense, but like that's the present is always the present, you know, so like... I am what I am today, but I'm maybe not what I was yesterday, but yesterday I was what I am, you know, uh, you know, like it, it's, the, it's this kind of like uh, logical thing, but um, yeah, I don't know. I find it hopeful. I find it tentative uh, in a way that feels realistic. I find it. Um, uh, I hope that the show doesn't take some, you know, Oh, I know dark turn. Whatever. <laughs> Good work so far. Please don't disappoint me. Um, yeah. And this idea of we are who we are, um, and and how we are, aren't we aren't who we are no but like the the Maggie Jenny stuff it's like they're army wives sure but then they share this moment where they're talking about like here are the ways in which we are something beyond being our powerful spouses partners you know what I mean and like um, Danny asks Craig who's Sam's older brother do you ever feel like you don't fit in and Craig is like I'm in the army bro <laughs> like that's what we we just we just fit. We just fit in. Here's where we fit in. Here's our tribal identity. And we all fit here in these boxes. And so we're watching characters like Danny and Harper and Frasier, um, like, 
real really like wilding out of those boxes you know what i mean danny danny i'm very worried about danny but i hope the best um for him and he figures something out uh to to be met with like to express suicidal ideation to your friend and have them be like oh beat the shit out of you you ever say that again you're like uh it's not get this get this boy some therapy i beg of you um Mm. but uh that's uh, yeah, that you know, I I just I think this is just a really fascinating exercise in like expression against the backdrop of well the the other thing about um you often find with gay narratives um it's um there was that great tweet about uh oh, I forget who did it about um the like the two lesbian romance films that are at the film festivals this year where someone was like. Uh, I think it was Alex Adbet. I'm not sure, but he was like, get the lesbians like fax machines and, and Wi-Fi. Like, basically, let's take these gay narratives out of period pieces and mm. bring them into modernity. And But I think a reason why gay love stories in period pieces are so irresistible to a certain kind of filmmaker is that it's like, oh, it's forbidden, the rigidity of the society. So instead of like setting it in the distance past, we're setting in our um, gender sexual awakening on an army base in the Trump election year. That's where the, that's where the, uh, and even with a lesbian woman at the head of the base, uh, there are some rigid structures in place here. So we'll see what we see, you know? Yeah. And it's two traditions, American military tradition and Italian cultural tradition crashing into each other, you know? Um, And I think that this episode illustrates that, um, in a really strange way and an interesting way. And uh, as the most plot heavy episode we've gotten so far, like it does feel like the show is now, you know, all the wheels are turning now, which is Excellent. interesting. Well, um, Richard, uh, until we come back to talk about episode four, uh, where can folks find you? Well, it's tug of war <laughs> season. So I, I'm in practice. Well, we call it rehearsals, but I'm in rehearsals probably four days a week. And then on the weekends, I'm traveling to a lot of different tug of war competitions, uh, which is, which is really exciting. You know, I, I trained for this all really all year. So, uh, I'll be doing that in the meantime, when I'm not, you know, in, in rehearsals, I will be tweeting at Rylaws and writing reviews and things on VF.com. Joanna, until we head back. To the base next week. Uh, where will you be? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I wrote this, but mostly uh, we'll see you guys next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.